Well, good morning. Um, as you've probably guessed, Mike is still on vacation, so that gives guys like me a chance to preach. My name is Tom Licata. I'm one of the elders here. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we're going to look at verses 35 through 43. So Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 43. And when you have that, if you could stand with me if you're able. All right, let's read God's word. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, for he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we look uh, at this uh, tremendous passage of Scripture, that you will speak to our hearts uh, in the way that you want to speak, and that we can hear your voice talking, and that your word uh, can come alive to us, Lord. Thank you for the grace that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the parable of the sower, if you're familiar with that parable, In that parable, you have a farmer throwing out seeds to all different types of soil. And in some cases, that seed takes root and produces fruit. In other cases, seed doesn't do anything. And again, it it depends on the type of the soil because the the seed is the same, right? The seed's the same, you know, in all different types of soil. The difference is in the soil. Now, in that parable, the seed represents the word of God and the, the soil or the ground represents people's hearts so in the same way you could have two people say who are unbelievers and, and they'll hear an evangelistic message and one responds and one doesn't now they both heard the exact same message but there was a different response why? because it depended on where their heart is at And so how we respond to the Word of God doesn't depend so much on our intellectual ability to understand it and that kind of thing, but rather it it has everything to do with the disposition of the heart. Well, in the same way, we have these different groups of people looking at Jesus hanging on the cross. They're all seeing the exact same thing, but yet we have different responses. Again, it depends on where their hearts are at. So let's look at these different responses. How do different people respond to Jesus? Well, the first response we see is one of ridicule and hostility. Look again at verse 35. 
And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So we see this attitude of uh, mocking, this attitude of ridicule, and really one of kind of an, uh, like an almost underlying hostility toward Jesus. Well, he thought he was so great in life and this kind of thing. Now look at him. And we see the same attitude today by extension, uh, this attitude of mocking and ridicule, even one of hostility. We see it toward Christians today and toward the church today. Now all you have to do is just look in, in the media and see how Christianity is often portrayed to see that there's kind of a mocking and ridicule, almost a hostility it seems like. In a uh, Barna Group poll, it says this, Young Americans today are more skeptical and resistant to Christianity than were people of the same age just a decade ago, says this new study. Negative perceptions toward the Christian faith have outweighed the positive as a growing percentage of younger Americans associate with a faith outside Christianity. Only 16% of non-Christians ages 16 to 29 years old said they have a good impression of Christianity, according to a report released Monday by the Barna Group. A decade ago, a vast majority of Americans outside the Christian faith, including young people, felt favorably toward Christianity's role in society. So what it's saying is that, you know, a decade in, in the past, even people who didn't go to church and didn't necessarily consider themselves Christians, but yet they had a favorable impression of Christianity. Christianity was associated with such groups as Salvation Army, uh, the Rescue uh, Mission, uh, Soup Kitchens, that kind of thing. Organizations that were for the down and out, to help the homeless, this kind of thing. And many of them, if not most of them, started by Christian groups. Many hospitals throughout the world, even in the United States, were again started by Christian groups. In fact, the, the first major hospital in uh, Orange County St. Joseph's Hospital, I think it was started in 1920, was started by the Sisters of St. Joseph. And of course, Christians had their message of love, of God's love, and they stood for high moral standards, which was not always viewed negatively in the past. And so Christians and Christianity in the church tended to be viewed in a, in a positive light by most people, even if they didn't go to church themselves. But times have changed. As, as society has changed and, and as, as society has gotten further and further away from its, its biblical roots and Christianity has stayed, at least for those that have stayed with the Bible as the standard, there's more of this disparity between the two and more and more society looks at Christianity in a negative light, ridicules, makes fun of it. Um, we especially see this uh, with the whole uh, issue of homosexuality. As that has become more and more accepted, and Christians say, no, that's not, that was not God's original plan. This kind of, you know, Christians are viewed very negatively, I mean, just almost attacked and, and viewed as being filled with hate or something like that kind of a thing. Um, I mean, obviously, they don't really understand where we're coming from. Maybe there are times, as, as Christians, we haven't done a very good job of, of getting that message across. Nevertheless, that's just one issue. But there's a number of issues where we are at odds with what the world is teaching, what our current culture is saying. 
You can come into church and hear a message here on Sunday morning and then go out there in the world and hear a message that is 180 degrees what you just heard in church. And so for those uh, Christians, actually, unfortunately, there are those Christians who will tend to compromise and go along because it's not comfortable. Right and wrong, the, the sense of right and wrong that most people have, you wonder, you wonder, where do they get the sense of right and wrong? Most people will get it from the culture they live in. They grew up in a certain culture, in the society, and, and that's what just seems right to them. And so as culture changes and the mores of culture shift and this kind of a thing, there's always going to be those within the church that will compromise because and they don't even necessarily realize they're doing it. But sometimes we get our sense of right and wrong from what the culture says. is. It getting, is it from culture or from the Bible? Sometimes we have to, to check ourselves. And unfortunately, you're always going to get those Christians and those churches that, that will compromise because what's, what's the alternative? Well, the world's going to mock you. It's going it's to be hostile toward you. And Well, we want to reach out to the world, you know, whatever uh, excuses we use. But we still want to believe in the Bible, right? So what do you do? Well, it's no problem. We just have the latest research and we come up with new interpretations of scripture and this kind of a thing and you know and so that we can kind of uh, quote unquote keep our faith say we believe in the Bible um, when really all we want to do is just be in harmony with, with the culture that we live in but as society has gotten further and further away from its Christian roots Christians for those who stay faithful have become more and more the target of ridicule and hostility as we've become out of step with society but remember what Jesus said. He said, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We shouldn't expect anything less. Jesus said, Look, if you're going to really follow me and obey my words, then you've got to expect to be persecuted just like I was persecuted, just like Jesus as he's hanging on this cross is being mocked and scoffed at. So the first response is one of, of ridicule and hostility. But then there's a second response. And that is a response of making demands of Jesus. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If you're Christ, if you're the Messiah, and that's what the word Christ means, it's just the Greek form of it, if you're who you, they say you are, then, you know, fix my problems. Get me off this cross. Take away this pain. You're the son of God. You can do it. You've got the power, so why aren't you doing it? It's kind of a like, you know, what's in it for me kind of an attitude. Years ago, I had a friend named uh, Dave Warner who had been part of our uh, group. It was, it was part of a singles group. It was always before I was married. And he was professing Christian, but then he turned his back on his Christian faith and decided he wasn't a Christian. He kind of ended up rejecting it all. And I remained friends with him, and I would, you know, try to talk to him. My goal was try to sort of bring him back, you know, try to witness to him. And one time we were talking, and he, he said to me, Tom, why are you a Christian? That's a golden opportunity, a question like that. I wouldn't quite try to respond. My response was something along the lines of, well, you know, it gives... Uh, meaning and purpose to life. You know, that's what life's all about. And his response is, well, good, you know, then it works for you. 
So I, was, I thought about that later. You know, what did he mean by, you know, it works for you? What he, what he probably meant was that, you know, well, you know, it makes me happy. If it makes you happy, great. If going to church and believing that stuff, you know, if that makes you happy, great. Then it works for you. Uh, but that wasn't his thing, you know. But is that really what Christianity is all about? Is that what life's all about? You know, just being happy? I think the average person would say so, and even Christians get caught up in this. And my friend Dave obviously thought so. But that brings us to a problem. See, if believing in God or being a Christian, if that's, if that's not going to make you happy, then what's the point? You know, what good is God if he's, if he's got all this power and, he, and he's not going to fix your problems and just going to let you suffer? And what good is it? If you're that thief hanging on the cross and you're suffering and you're in pain and you've got Jesus Christ, you know, right next to you and you've heard all these things about this Jesus, so you turn to him and say, hey, if you're really Jesus Christ, if you're really who they say you are, then why don't you save yourself and get me out of this? What's the matter? You're not, you're not going to do anything? You're just going to hang there? You're the Messiah and all these Son of God and all these wonderful things they say about you, but you're not going to do anything? Looks like I'm going to suffer whether I believe in you or not. So what difference is it going to make? Charles Price, he's a... Um, pastor of the All People's Church in Toronto, Canada. He was also, a, uh, years ago, a Bible teacher at Cape Mary Bible School, and one of my favorite teachers there. But he says this, There are many who are only interested in God if He is willing to meet their need. If we are in trouble, we pray, and when God does not answer, we can easily dismiss Him. He had His chance, and it didn't work. We cannot explain why God does not always intervene. But we do know he looks upon the heart. The first thief had no humility, no repentance or guilt, but could only see Jesus as a way out, a last resort. You know, we condemn that unrepentant thief for his attitude, for making demands of Jesus, and, and properly so. But the thing is, if, we are, if we're honest... We'd have to admit that many of us, probably many times, have had that same attitude. God, if you're really there, then why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Why are you letting me suffer when you could so easily fix this? I've got these problems. You know, I'm in pain. I have financial problems. You know, just whatever. Why aren't you fixing it? I'm praying. Well, part of the problem, I think there's a couple reasons why, but I think part of the problem that we sometimes struggle with this is that the truth is, if we're honest, that we realize we're really living for ourselves. We, we, we're living for what we think is, is best for us, and we define best for us as in terms of what's going to make us happy. And we're not really living for God or, or living for what, you know, for God using us to further His purpose. Now, if you're like me and you're like most Christians, you you probably go back and forth. There are probably times you're really living for God and your heart's right, and there are other times you might catch yourself, you're kind of being selfish and thinking of yourself, and it's, you know, I think the typical Christian life is, is this kind of struggle back and forth, and hopefully we make progress as time goes on, and it's probably going to be a struggle for the rest of our lives. But 
Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said that to the Philippians. For me to live is Christ. Now, when Paul said that, he was actually in prison, less than ideal circumstances, but yet in that epistle, you still hear him talking about uh, the joy of the Lord. How could he do that? Because for him to live was Christ. So even though his personal circumstances were less than ideal and not what we'd want, they weren't circumstances that were going to make him personally happy, but that wasn't his concern. He wasn't living for himself. He was living for Christ, for me to live in Christ. So it didn't matter if his circumstances weren't comfortable for him personally. If those circumstances are going to somehow further the gospel and and Paul could see how God was using that, then great, fine. Because for me to live is Christ. Now, if we were to answer that question, how do we answer it? For me to live is what? Pleasure, happiness, having fun, being happy, making more money. How would we answer that? For me to live is, can we say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Now, the other part of the problem is that we are finite creatures and we are trying to understand an infinite God. If you take the example of a, uh, of a little child, say a toddler, a little boy, and say this, this toddler has a, a serious medical problem and, and he needs surgery. Now, it's always sad when something like that happens, but unfortunately, occasionally, uh, that sometimes is the case. Well, the parents... You know, they're in a tough circumstance. They know this child needs surgery. But at his age, you can't really explain to him. You know, a three-year-old or whatever. How do you explain all the medical, this medical condition and the surgery and what that surgery is? You know, that's going to be beyond what a little, a little child can understand. And so the best you can do is say, look, you know, you're going to have to stay in this hospital and we'll take care of you and you have to go through the surgery. It's not going to be comfortable. It's going to hurt, but you know what? It's, it's best. You know, this, you try to explain it as best you can in the terms that you can understand. But in the end, this, this child cannot really understand fully what's going on. This child just has to trust his parents. And for the most part, a child will trust his parents because children have seem to be wired to do that. Unfortunately, a little child is more able and willing to trust his parents than we are in trusting God when we're going through something that we don't understand what God's doing. And and, and I would say often, if not most of the time, we don't understand why God's allowing this. Now, maybe in the future we can look back and understand it, but even that's not a for sure thing. Sometimes we just have to trust God. We just have to have faith in Jesus that he knows what he's doing and that God's got a plan, and I, even if I don't fully understand it. Now, do you think that thief hanging on that cross there, making demands of Jesus, do you think he understood what God's plan was at that time? From the beginning of the world, God had a plan of salvation to save all people. And the key moment of this plan of salvation was happening right then and there, right next to him. And he's saying to Jesus, hey, if you're the Christ, you know, get yourself down here and save me as well. Do you think he had a clue as to what was going on? He had no idea what God's plan was. And you know what? I don't think he even really cared. All he cared about was the suffering that he was going through. So we get a response of making demands 
on Jesus. Then we got a third response. A response of humility, of repentance, and of faith. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not fear God? Do you know who you're talking to here? You refer to him as the Christ. Now, this other thief believed Jesus really was the Christ. He really was the Messiah. I mean, that becomes obvious in his attitude. And, you know, if that's who Jesus is, the anointed one of God, I mean, is that any way to be talking to Jesus? Making demands of him? What does it say in Romans chapter 9, verse 20? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So what does form say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? You've got the God of the universe creating the entire universe. He could wipe us out in the bat of an eye if he wanted. We're the dust of the earth, you know, compared to him. And you're talking to him like that? You're talking back to God, making demands of him? Who are you to be talking back to God? Have you no fear of God? True humility is having the proper perspective of yourself in relation to God. And it wasn't say in James, we're, we're but a, a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. When you ask God of anything, you ask with all humility. You don't go making demands of God. And then we see this thief, in addition, he has a, a repentant heart. Look at verse, well, again, go back to verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. We are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. What, what is happening to us is happening to us because we deserve it, because of what we've done. Well, you know, when you think about it, that's pretty harsh. What, what, was his, what was his crime? We don't really know for sure. All he knows is he was referred to as a thief. So he obviously had stole something. Maybe he had stole a number of things. I mean, who knows where he got caught. But in our society, I mean, would we invoke capital punishment on if a crime because somebody stole something? <laughs> no, not even close. Um, and yet here he is hanging on a cross because of this. And he says, you know what, we're getting what we deserve. And it seems a bit harsh to us, but you know what? Um, we tend to, when we look at sin, we don't want to look at sin in all of its ugliness. We tend to want to whitewash our sins, or at least, you know, we, we uh, tend to look at sin not quite as bad as what it is. Sometimes we have the attitude, if it's pointed out we're not obeying Scripture, is, yeah, I know, I, I should, but... It's almost like if somebody's uh, on a diet, you know, they're supposed to eat certain foods, you know, this kind of a thing, and gosh, you know, here I am breaking your diet. You're breaking your diet, well, I know I shouldn't eat this, but, you know, you know how it is. And sometimes we have that same attitude with obeying Scripture. Yeah, I know I should be obeying the Bible here and there, but you know how it is. I mean, we, we take it almost a cavalier attitude. Suppose you were dressed in just dirty, filthy clothes, walking around in like dirty rags or something like that. You might feel a little embarrassed unless everybody else is walking around the same way. They're all walking around in dirty clothes, filthy rags. Well, you don't feel so bad, right? As a matter of fact, you could probably uh, find someone who's even dirtier than you, right? Well, look at that guy. He's got mud kicked on his face or something like that, you know? 
I'm not that bad, you know. Almost make yourself feel pretty clean compared to that guy, you know. And that's what we do. But suppose somebody walked in who was just really spick and span clean, you know. Clothes were crisp, has a pure white shirt on, you know, this kind of a thing, and almost, almost shining or whatever. And then he stands next to you and it's like, gosh, you know, could not stand right next to me. You're kind of making me feel dirty here. But the truth is, you feel dirty because you are dirty. And we, don't, we didn't fully realize it before. I mean, we kind of knew it, but it just didn't seem so bad, right? Because everybody else was dirty. But when you compare yourself next to God's standard, suddenly we don't look so good. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. And we don't realize that, that our rights are like filthy rags until we, we can get a clear view of God's righteousness. Crucifixion was invented because they wanted to come up with a form of execution where the criminal didn't die so quick. That would be more of a, you know, stand as an example for people. And so when they crucified somebody, they often would put it in a public place, like in a road or someplace where everybody could see it, and they'd put his crimes, you know, above his head kind of a thing, and it was meant to serve as a deterrent. And that person, you know, they'd, they'd put nails, as you know, in his hands and feet, which would obviously be very painful, and he would hang there, and he could literally last for several days before he finally died. And you're uncomfortable because the way you're hanging, your diaphragm kind of constriction, you always have to, you know, push yourself up to breathe, but you're pushing yourself up, you know, on feet with, you know, nails through it. It's kind of a torturous way to be hanging there, and that would literally last for days, again, usually you know, before the person finally uh, died. It wasn't exactly a quick death. And this thief says, you know, we deserve this. Here he is actually hanging there, going through this, saying, you know, we deserve this. This thief was under no illusions as to the seriousness of his sins. But you see, to have a repentant heart, we need to recognize the seriousness of our sins. We need to see our sins in all their ugliness. But true repentance isn't just recognizing our sins. It isn't just being sorry for our sins. It's more than that. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, the Apostle Paul says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Not because you were grieved, in other words, not because you grieved over your sins, not just because you were sorry for your sins, but even more than that, you grieved into repenting. This grief of your sins led to repenting. So repenting is more than just feeling sorry for your sins. True godly repentance involves a changing of one's mind. It involves a turning around, a, a complete alteration of our basic motivation and direction in our lives. Brian Hedges, who wrote the book Christ Formed and News, says this, to repent is to have a new mind toward God, oneself, Christ, and the world, committing one's heart to a new obedience to God. Jesus said, I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. At least they thought they needed no repentance. So when one sinner truly, sincerely repents with a godly repentance, that is what makes all of heaven rejoice. But, so, so in order to be right with God, you need to have that humble heart. You need to have a true heart of repentance. 
But even that is not enough. You need more than humility and repentance. You need to actually express faith in Jesus. Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is a statement of faith. As a matter of fact, that is a tremendous statement of faith. Here he is looking at Jesus, hanging on the cross there, still believing in who Jesus is, still believing Jesus is going to come into his kingdom. That's why he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, a lot of Jesus' disciples who followed him did not have that kind of faith. Just turn over to chapter 24 of Luke. Still in Luke there. Chapter 24, starting with verse 13. Here we have the story of two disciples. Now, this is after Jesus had died. He had just risen, but the apostles and the disciples, I should say, hadn't realized it yet. And not all of those who called themselves disciples of Jesus were just the twelve. You know, there was plenty of those who considered themselves followers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus. So we've got two of them here. Because that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and and the word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And I'll stop there. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. You see, Jesus' disciples, even though they believed in him, believed in the Messiah, they still had some wrong ideas about what Jesus' kingdom was. They were thinking in terms that he was going to throw off the yoke of, of Rome and, and redeem Israel and you know, set up a kingdom in Israel and this kind of a thing. But when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, all bloodied and beaten and, and, and dying a sinner's death, I knew he was about to die soon, all their hopes were dashed. We had hoped, past tense, we had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But their hopes were dashed. No one believed in Jesus at that point. No one uh, had understood what kind of kingdom Jesus had been talking about except one, this thief. Somehow this thief hanging on the cross looked at Jesus and despite what his eyes were telling him, looking at this bloody beat up Jesus hanging on a cross, knowing that he was probably going to die soon, yet despite that, this thief still believed in Jesus, still believed that somehow he was going to come into his kingdom and so he, that's why he makes this request, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To me, that's a tremendous statement of faith. I think one of the greatest statements of faith in all about, if not the greatest, because I don't know if anyone in all the world at that moment still believed in Jesus the way this thief did. 
Everyone else is, you know, all the disciples, their hopes were dashed. But yet, despite all that, this thief still believes Jesus is coming into his kingdom and somehow had some kind of an understanding what that meant. He must have understood somehow. It didn't mean a a kingdom like the other Jews were thinking. How do you understand that? You know, I I, I think a clue we have is in 2 Timothy 2.25. There Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So there's something about a true godly repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. There's no question that this thief had a true repentance. He looked at his sins and he had no illusions about his sins. And he was basically just asking for mercy of Jesus. He wasn't asking for anything special. Just remember me, Jesus. And even then it was put in the form of a request. No demands. And so this true repentance somehow led to a knowledge of the truth, obviously by God's grace or the power of the Holy Spirit. He somehow had that understanding. Now, how did Jesus respond to them? Well, look in verse 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. After the thief repented and had that humble attitude and showed us an amazing faith in Jesus, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Now what did he say to the other thief? What did he say to the first thief? The one who was making demands. Get yourself off the cross and save yourself and save me. What did Jesus say to that thief? Didn't say anything. As far as we know, Jesus pretty much ignored him. And sometimes when people pray... And it seems like God's ignoring you. You know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, where's our heart? Now, sometimes it's just, it just doesn't fit into God's plans and we just have to trust Him. But other times, the reason He's not answering is because our heart's just not in the right place. Look at the James chapter 4, verse 2, the second half of verse 2. It says, You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. How many times are we guilty of just asking for the wrong motives? You see, this selfishness becomes a basic motivation in our lives. We're living for ourselves, you know, our motivation to do what, what we think is best in our lives. And we define best, obviously, as what's going to make us happy. And, and as Christians, you know, we struggle with this. And sometimes you can fall into that selfish kind of mode without even realizing it and then we bring that mindset into our prayers and then we wonder why God doesn't answer our, our prayers because we're again like James said we're asking with the wrong motives and God's up there if he were to answer saying you know you're just living for yourself you want me to you know you're praying and you want me to give you everything you want to make your life all hunky dory that's not what life's all about that's not what I'm here for that's not what I want for you I want you to grow in the Lord. You're just interested in being happy. And if, if that's all you want, if you just want to live for yourself, then you can do it yourself. I'm not going to help you. <laughs> you know, it's like, like a drunk, you know. It'll make me happy if you give me another bottle of wine, you know. Well, you're on your own. I'm not going to help you with that. God's not going to indulge us. But God doesn't actually say that to us. And he probably says, like, did the thief, just kind of... A, doesn't say anything. So we need to examine our heart. 
But, but what did he say to the other thief, to that repentant thief? He said, today you will live me in paradise. So here's the thing. Did what Jesus say to the repentant thief, did that make that thief's situation any better? That thief come down from the cross? Did, it, did you think it even eased the pain and the suffering he was going through? No. But see, here's the thing. The repentant thief wasn't asking for that. I believe that even though it didn't take away the suffering, still what Jesus said made a difference. I think that thief took away two things from what Jesus said. Number one, that he knew that when he died, he would be with Jesus in paradise. I think he just took Jesus right as his word. And he knew he was going to die soon. I mean, uh, um, crucifixion was a common thing in those days. And you know that, you know, the thief, anybody hanging across, you're only going to last like a few days at most, and then you're going to die. So he knew he was going to die soon within a matter of days. But he knew that when he died, that he could look forward to being with Jesus in paradise. You know, you can put up with a lot in life if, you, if you've got light at the end of the tunnel, you know, if you can see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, when, uh, for example, take the example of, say, surgery. Um, why would someone go through surgery? If you've ever been through surgery, you know it, it hurts a lot. You're, in, you're you know, in the bed. It takes time to recover. It's uncomfortable. You know, why would somebody put themselves through that pain and suffering? Because they believe that it's going to be better for them in the long run. And the short-term pain and suffering is... You know, it will be worth it. If, if they've got that mindset, they can put up with it. If they're thinking in their mind, this is going to be better in the long run. You can put up a lo- with a lot if you have hope. People who commit suicide, it's not just that their life is tough and, and painful, which it obviously must be, or they wouldn't have committed suicide, but it's, it's not only tough and painful, because for a lot of people, life's tough and painful, but for people who commit suicide, they have no hope. They can't see any way out. Better just to end it. It's the hope that gives us strength. It's this hope that that for Christians who have been persecuted throughout history, from Roman days up until now, depending on what country you live in, it's this hope that gets them through it. Because they believe this life is just temporary, it's just a short thing, and soon, you know, when you die, we're going to be with Jesus for all of eternity. And the more you believe that, the more that's a reality to you, the more strength you have to get through those tough times. Again, that's what's gotten Christians through those tough times of persecution. But secondly, Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. See, that means that he was going to be with Jesus by the end of that day. Normally, and what he had in mind, up until that point before he heard Jesus say that, he had a prospect of hanging there for days of suffering. But what did Jesus say? He said, today, before this day is over, you will be with me in paradise. And that's a good thing. I mean, to die is a good thing when you're under those circumstances. Now, we know from the other Gospels uh, that, you know, it was, it was around Pentecost, or not Pentecost, but uh, the Passover, and they didn't want these criminals hanging around for, for the uh, Passover, and not the kind of decorations that you normally want. And so what they did is they, they broke their legs 
sounds like a cruel thing to do, but by doing that, uh, it prevented them from being able to push up so they could breathe, and they ended up dying quicker. Sounds cruel, but it actually ended up being a good thing because they, they died quicker. And so here he was with the prospect of suffering for days, and then he hears what Jesus says, today, before this day is over, you will be with me in paradise. You don't think that made a difference? You don't think that gave him a strength? Even, even in the midst of that suffering, the suffering didn't go down, but mentally, think what a difference that made. Even Jesus, the hope, even helped Jesus to get through the cross. I know that sounds kind of crazy thinking of that, you know, of Jesus, but, but what does it say in Hebrews 12, 2? It says, for the joy, it's talking about Jesus now, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of God. He endured the cross, why? Because of the joy that was set before him. Because he knew that he was going to be sitting at the right hand of God. Hope gives us strength. It gave Christians strength throughout time. And you know what? The reality is that that thief was with Jesus by the end of that day. And by the end of that day when he had died and he was now with Jesus in paradise, how do you think he looked back at that suffering on the cross? Think that really meant that big of a deal at that point? Probably didn't care anymore at that point. And now here it is about 2,000 years since that incident, that event. And that thief has been with Jesus for 2,000 years now. Do you, what do you think he thinks about when he thinks back to his suffering and the, the tough times of his life? Do you think he gives... Gives even a moment's thought. If you thought about it all, it probably just seems like a brief moment compared to all of eternity. So, there are three responses that we that people have to Jesus. One is what ridicule and hostility that we see in the world. One is is of making demands of Jesus. If you're really God, if you're really there, you got all this power, then. Meet my needs. And thirdly, a response of humility and of repentance and of faith in Jesus, no matter what the circumstances. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your tremendous grace that we don't always understand, Lord, but yet you, you bless us again and again. Lord, we just pray that this hope that we have in Jesus will become more and more real to us in our hearts and our minds, Lord, and that more and more we will win that battle by living for you and not ourselves, and that more and more our hearts will stay in the right place, Lord. Thank you for the grace that you give us that enables us to win that battle, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.